Starting a new series, it's called After Life. What's next and what it means now. And these slides are super beautiful and they're also super hard to see on this screen. So it won't offend me if you turn back to look at that nice HD TV back there because we have a lot of ground to cover. We have a lot of information to get to. And tonight our focus is on heaven. Before we really dive in, I want to draw your attention to these baskets over here. One of them is the basket that's there every week for giving. The other is filled with some blank index cards and a little piece of paper behind it. It says, after life, write your questions about heaven, hell, resurrection, and Christ's return. And you can fold them up and drop them in that basket there. We're going to have a Q&A, Lord willing, at the end of the month of 5th Saturday, September 30th. This will be what we're doing this September, after life. What's next and what it means for us now? So we're going to do things a little bit differently in this series. Normally, this is where I start to read a passage of Scripture, and then we go back and work through that passage of Scripture. I'm going to read a passage at the end. So the first chunk will be more informational. And then the last little bit, I'm going to try to leave you with a parting word and sense of hope. So instead of reading a passage, I want to tell you a story as we begin. Last week, I talked about how Amy, myself, Jaron, and Kristen drove down to Cedar Hill to see the infamous Hell House. There was a documentary of the same name that chronicled a church that was one of the largest Christian-themed pseudo-haunted houses that staged different real-life scenes in which young people would just go along and make choices. And then something tragic would occur, they would die, and then we, the gallery, the audience, moving from room to room, would follow them to hell and ultimately heaven. Some of those kids, after their choices in their life together, would wind up in hell, and others would wind up in heaven. Now, I got some grief because there was some divas in here, <clears throat> Amy Sinclair and Robert Vaughn, that wished I had talked about not the one in Cedar Hill, but the one right here in Garland, Texas. There was one I mentioned that was at The Rock, starring in different years Robert Vaughn and Amy Sinclair, and featuring Kara and Cameron and etc. They didn't call it a hell house, they called it a house of judgment. And I went to this house of judgment, circa 1996. I was a youth group kid, and I walked through, and I'll be honest with you, I went to see hell. I know, that sounds like a dramatic confession, but I'm a lover of horror movies and Halloween in general. And if I couldn't go to a real haunted house, then I wanted something that would scare me. And so I went to go see what hell looked like at the rock. Now, ironically, I became the director of that community center and would try to fix all the problems of Court 9. But for one evening in October, Court 9 was the scene for hell. And in fact, Robert Vaughn, a dear friend and great member of the neighborhood church, was suspended from the ceiling of an enormous racquetball court. Beneath him were fog machines and red lights and speakers playing something like Pantera, Dallas's own. 
and he was writhing in agony after we had ventured through the bus crash from the bus borrowed from his dad who worked on school buses. They moved from the scene where they were in the bus all bloodied and painted. It was horrifying, but it's why we went for Halloween. And some of them wound up in heaven, Robert suspended, and it was salacious and dramatic and terrifying. Then we would walk down the hallway into heaven. Heaven didn't have Pantera playing. Heaven had Enya playing. Show of hands if you know Enya. That means you were born before 2000. It had flowing white lace and curtains and patterns. People just moved differently. There was no writhing. There was processing. There was no agony. There was worship. There were crowns and robes, and there was a throne. In fact, I didn't go to this one, but this room that we are in this evening was heaven for one of those houses of judgment. Am I right? They transformed this room so much that Pastor Larry of Freeman Heights said, "Um, I'm a big fan of heaven, but y'all can't be stapling carpet and cloths from the ceiling to the wall. Go back to the rock. We went to see hell, but every single one of us, even if we weren't big fans of Inya, knew that we preferred to be in heaven. Now, The robes, the throne, the crowns, the angels, the procession and peace, all modeled on a glimpse of heaven's throne room in, guess where? Revelation chapters 4 and 5. We get a little bit of glimpse in the wild book of Revelation, which Lord willing we'll talk more about in a couple weeks, where you get a little peek into the throne room of heaven that has robes and crowns and worship and angels. But where the Bible only gives us one teeny little glimpse in Revelation 4 and 5, pop culture and popular ideas have filled in the rest of the picture when it comes to heaven and hell. And so I want to invite you over this month to go with me just enough to hold your hands and your heart open to discern and decide with me which glimpses are more thoroughly rooted in what little hints and inklings we get from the Bible about afterlife and then to leave aside those that are more informed by Bill and Ted's bogus journey. Anybody else? Or some popular culture ideas that are more informed by the Far Side cartoons. Anybody else? We're just going to do this all night. I'm going to say things about pop culture and you're going to raise your hand and say, I know what he's talking about. What I want you to do is go with me on a journey and understand that maybe the picture is a little less clear than we think. But there's still something that we can glean about what's next and what it means for us now. So tonight, our focus is heaven, and what I'm going to do with the Bible is pull the rug out from under most of our feet, pull the rug out from most of our 
understandings and the ideas that are more formed by the Simpsons, show of hands, no, just making sure you're still awake, and less informed from the Bible. But then Jesus and I, at the end, when I read a passage of Scripture, we're going to take that rug, and we're going to realize that it's soft and useful, and we're going to wrap ourselves in that rug so that we can still rest in hope. That even though some of these ideas are more formed by seventh grade memories and less from the scripture, there is some truth as we examine those glimpses that matter for us now and then. So heaven, where we're headed, not just ultimately, but tonight, wink, wink, got it? First, what are we really talking about when it comes to heaven? Second, what we know of what's ultimately unknowable. The truth of the matter is, no one can and does know fully what to expect on the other side. Inasmuch as you, as a baby, knew anything about the outside world when you were in your mother's womb, you just knew her voice, right? You just knew that you belonged to someone other than yourself. But you had no idea how great Chipotle was going to be. You had no idea how wonderful it is to ski and see the mountains. All you knew was a voice. And then you're born into this world that we know and love now. And so I want you to hold open in your heart this understanding that what we have is whispers and a voice and someone we can trust. But ultimately, we know just as much of the world to come as we did when we were in our mother's womb of the world that is. Go with me on that journey. Thirdly, when we read a passage from Scripture that will help us wrap up and know that we can rest easy before we rest in peace. You with me? The first section. What we're really talking about when we talk about heaven. We're going to clear away some misunderstandings. We're going to move quickly. First, I need you to understand that the Bible's picture is not as clear as the culture's picture. Ask anyone on the street, what's heaven like? Tonight, in our youth guide, we said, draw a picture of what you hope heaven will be. And I bet if they're the students sitting here or the people on the street, they will have some sense, and maybe it's wishful thinking or maybe it's intuition, that things are good. They want to believe this because we have people we know who have died. And it's rooted in a deep-seated hope that death is not the end. But when we go to the Bible we find absolute zero of a phrase that says, here's how to go to heaven when you die. More pointedly, there is not one sentence, Genesis to Revelation, that says, go to heaven when you die. There's not one sentence, Genesis to Revelation, that says heaven and hell. In fact, as we'll see in a moment, heaven as a post-mortem place is almost never spoken of from Genesis to Revelation. Heaven simply is not the focus of the Bible and our life. 
So if you ask anyone on the street, what's it like? There's a deep-seated hope, but look, not a whole lot of data. And so they fill in the blanks and they say, it's going to be like a country club. Or maybe some of them, and you've seen the Facebook posts, he became an angel. But the Bible says, no, there's angels and there's humans. You don't graduate and get your wings. That's, it's a wonderful life. There's simply not as clear a picture as all the ways that we've filled in the blanks. And frankly, heaven is simply not the focus of the Bible and our life. Years ago, I think I told you that one of the evenings I was asked to teach the youth at a church that I was on staff at previously, I said, let's do an experiment. I said, what is the point of life? And invariably, a few smattering of answers from our teenagers came at me. But it really, they boiled it down and came to this consensus. The point of life is to get yourself right so that you go to heaven when you die. I said, that is a good and noble pursuit. We might go to the house of judgment to check on hell, but everybody wants to wind up in heaven. Even though Pantera rocks more than Inya, that's a noble pursuit. We got to get those tickets for that metal show coming up in November. Now, they said this, and I recognized that was a noble pursuit. And I said, now you have your Bible in front of you. Get together in some teams. You have five minutes to find any and every verse in the Bible that speaks of this being the point of our life with God. And after five minutes, we found zero. What we found, though, if you do look, is something like Leilani read earlier in Philippians 1. A passing glimpse where Paul says, I know that I've got work to do, but I desire to, watch, depart and what? Be with Christ. Blink and you miss it. There's a passing glance that shows us if he were to die, he would be where? Where? With Christ. Later, Paul fills all of his letters with the reality of being in Christ. Paul believes he's in Christ today, and he believes that he'll be even more present and with Christ after death. But that's a blink and you miss it glimpse and not as clear a picture as we want. No, no clouds, no country club. No taco buffets. Heaven is simply not the focus of the Bible and our life. If we just look at the biblical data. Now, I'll tell you that heaven is also not our ultimate hope, nor our final home. There's an asterisk there. If you jump to the end of the story, as some of those students did that evening, they see in Revelation 21 and 22 a new what? Heaven and a new earth, a.k.a. new Jerusalem. Let me tell you what. What are the last two chapters of our Bible? Revelation 21 and 22. What's happening at the end of Revelation well, that's week three when we talk about Christ's return, or week four. What is happening in between? 
that's just what we get glimpses of, tastes of, something that we just long to believe and see just enough glimpses in the Bible that to depart is to be with God. So heaven is not our ultimate hope. No, it's a great, wonderful resting place with God on our way to new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth, which is our final home. I love how N.T. Wright puts it. Heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. That's a Bible joke. Heaven is important, but Revelation 4 and 5 is a different glimpse than Revelation 21 and 22. Are you with me so far? Understand that from Genesis 1, when Adam, which is the name for humankind, and Eve, which is a name for life, when Adam and Eve are placed into a garden, they're given the task to tend the garden, to partner with God for the earth. We are people of the earth. And then all the way at the end of the story, we live within a garden city. And we reclaim our original intent to live not up there, but down here. Because the trajectory and the goal is that heaven comes to earth. So what we're talking about is a few glimpses that have been ramped up by our hope and our misplaced focus. It's not that these kids were wrong. It's that ultimately the Bible concerns itself with the people of earth making sure that earth looks more like heaven before we ever go and find out what it is. You with me? What are we really talking about? Well, we have to clear away some of those assumptions before we get to section two, which is what we know of what's ultimately unknowable. We're all in utero. We're living in this earth as it ought not to be. But we're waiting for him to renew all things and that heaven and earth will one day be one. But guess what? In the Old Testament, you will find absolute zero understandings of what would come to be known culturally as going to heaven when you die. There was only one shadowy post-mortem place in the Old Testament, and it was Sheol. Have you heard that phrase, Sheol? You hear it a lot in the Psalms. It's synonymous with the grave. Everybody's favorite Eeyore of the Bible, the sad sack, despondent, depressed guy in Ecclesiastes. He says in Ecclesiastes 12.7, in what was presumably a funeral light, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. I'm paraphrasing. But then he says, when we die, our spirit returns to the Lord. Our breath leaves us. Do you know what the word in Hebrew is? For spirit, it's ruach. It's the same word as breath. He says we're like a broken cistern, just scattered. Elsewhere in the New Testament, or the Old Testament, in one of the Samuels, it says, what is a human life when we're dead, but just water spread out on the ground? Nobody can recover it. What they had in the Old Testament was no sense that you go to the country club in the sky or even a popular conception that you'd be suspended from court nine in the rock in utter agony for hell forever. Understand that 6,000 years, our forefathers and mothers followed God and had no concept of heaven and hell. That's a rug puller outer. Understand that from the Old Testament, there is really no concept as we have in our culture of heaven and hell. There is only life that is lived now with God that persists on in hope 
that we will be raised and live forever. Or there is life that is lived apart from God and ultimately it leads to death. We get to the New Testament and we see glimpses of a pleasant post-mortem place. Luke 16 is a story where Jesus is playing with some dramatic ideas of his day. Excuse me, remember the rich man in Lazarus? He talks about how it was a great reversal and the poor man, Lazarus, goes to Abraham's side and he is immediately in the presence and peace of paradise. And then the rich man is not. That's a parable, that's a story, but I think it's a glimpse. Luke 23, 43 is the famous, Today you'll be with me where, Jesus says to the thief, in paradise. One place in the Gospels where paradise is used. And it carries with it the connotation of Genesis 1 and Revelation 22. Philippians 1.23, I mentioned earlier, a passing blink and you miss it. If I depart my body, I'll be with who? Christ. And he wants to go there, so it must be pleasant. 2 Corinthians 12.4, Paul starts humble bragging on us about how he had a vision of paradise and heaven and ecstasy. He uses that word paradise, and he talks about how, oh, but I can't even really talk about it, it's too awesome. Y'all ready for a rug puller outer again? When I was growing up in a church with a pastor I loved dearly who loved Jesus and made an impact on this entire city. One of the favorite things he said almost every week is that we are all immortal. And that when you die, your soul is going to go on one way or another. And respectfully, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says... That God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light. God alone is immortal. There's something about the people of earth that received God's breath, that received God's life. But ultimately, we are living and moving and having our being solely because God has granted us grace to have an engine within our hearts known as the soul, that personhood, that personality, that engine that keeps us going. But ultimately, 1 Timothy says, God alone is immortal. And so I just wonder, are we inherently immortal? Or do we have a Greek philosopher, Plato, to thank for the idea of the immortal soul? Spoiler alert, that was a Plato thought, not a Bible thought. It's hidden in plain sight in places like John 3.16. Immortality is not a given, it's a gift. For those who believe will receive eternal life. Because God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not die or perish, but receive what? Eternal life. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life. 2 Timothy 1.10 says, He has made immortality come to light from the gospel. Can you believe with me and go with me that maybe immortality is not a given, it's a gift. The gift of God is eternal life. John in his gospel spoke a lot of eternal life, but he never talked about heaven as a post-mortem place. 
And he never talked about hell in all of John's gospel as a post-mortem place. Now, I believe that God's immortal and he gives eternal life. So I believe that we can say there's something about being connected to God that connects us with the life of heaven. Well, what is heaven? Let's go to the next slide. Heaven, almost always in the Bible, get this, is God's realm. What is heaven? It's where God is. Rarely a place like a country club. It's more about where God is and almost never where we go. Follow me here. Do you think that paradise is kind of like heaven? Yeah, probably. Do you think that where Christ is, seated at the Father's right hand, is heaven? Yes. All I'm trying to do is tease apart these assumptions of country club and clouds and saying that it's more about being with God where God is and less about far side cartoons. We get a glimpse in Revelation 4 and 5 of the throne room, but ultimately the trajectory is that that's where God is, that's where love is, that's where life is. And the Bible talks about heaven as God's space, and almost never about going to heaven when we die. So understand the biblical trajectory is not bottom up, all fly away, oh glory, although someday, but almost always we see anointing and healing and blessing and the kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. The biblical trajectory of heaven is more top-down than bottom-up. We get enough glimpses to trust that God does have life after death because if we're connected with him, if we receive his gift of eternal life, when I die, I can be with him now. But ultimately, we're waiting for the end of the chapter, Revelation 21 and 22, because the ultimate hope is resurrection of our bodies and renewal. You still with me on that? Let me say it to you like this. What we mean by heaven is step one of a two-step process of eternal life. So, this is your big idea number one. This is on the screen here with us. What I mean by heaven is step one, the resting place of a two-step process of eternal life. If that's step one, here's step two. Christian hope is a resurrected bodily existence on a renewed earth, not a disembodied soul on a cloud. Our souls may be in the presence of Christ and with the Father, but ultimately that's the waiting place, step one, the resting place, before Jesus returns and our souls and bodies are joined together like Jesus and will live on a new heaven and a new earth. Are we tracking with me? I told you this was a different kind of sermon. This is ultimate Christian hope. The life everlasting and the resurrection of the dead. So the way to get on board is to repent and believe the good news of God's kingdom. You can take a picture of this next slide. This is how the gospels most often talk about eternal life. Inheriting the kingdom. Eating in God's kingdom, shining like the sun in the kingdom, inheriting the kingdom, having the kingdom, going into eternal life. 
Eternal life is the outcome of being connected to the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus says, repent and believe the good news, I'm God's king, God's kingdom of heaven has come down to earth, you say, I want in on that. And you say, Jesus, I believe that you are Lord and I want to follow you in this life now and always. Eternal life is the outcome of being connected to the kingdom of heaven. Can I show you again that eternal life is contingent upon our connection with the source of life who we know as Jesus? It's what we do a lot with our children. If you put your left arm out like this, straight in front of your body, and you imagine that this elbow is when you were born. So put your birth date right there on the point of your elbow. And then you live some life, and eventually you hear the good news that Jesus is Lord, and you can be given eternal life. And so you say, yes, Jesus, I trust in your death and resurrection. I want to die and be raised with you. And so then you take your right arm. You remember what we do? And you put your right arm right there in that moment when you say yes. And all of a sudden, what was once the elbow of your birth and the end of your arm that is your death gets extended because you get connected to eternal life in God's kingdom that starts now the day you say yes and extends on. And that's where a metaphor breaks down because my elbow isn't long enough to extend out to eternity. So understand that when we do die, our life is hidden with Christ in God, as the scriptures say. And we're present with God, present with Christ, present with the Holy Spirit, in some way waiting in peace until ultimately he'll finish the job in step two and re resurrect us and renew all things. You with me on all that? Eternal life is contingent upon our connection with the source of life, who is Jesus. That's a lot. So let's end with a word of comfort from Jesus. I love this passage in John 14. I read it most often at funerals. When I do funerals, I usually float three ch uh, chapters unless somebody really wants something else. I usually float only one to three passages to say, let's talk about this. And I almost always want to talk about this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples right before he's going to get killed. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, so believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? So if I do go and prepare a place for you, don't worry. I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Then he looks across the table and he says, you know the way to the place where I am going. Then Thomas pipes up and says what we're all thinking. Uh, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? I heard this preacher say that knowing what really awaits us is like being in my mother's womb, and I don't know what a Chipotle is. I'm not born yet. I don't know how to get there. And Jesus answers what effectively amounts to, but don't you know my voice? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me.
The first thing you need to hear is Jesus say, don't be anxious, just believe. What is more anxiety-inducing than facing death? What is more anxiety-inducing than heading down to MD Anderson on Monday? What is more anxiety-inducing than a beloved one that you know is at the end stages of life? And I've said recently that if your faith doesn't work in hospice, then your faith doesn't work. There is something about holding suffering and death in one hand with a hope and assurance in the other that Jesus models when he sits across from his best friends and says, I'm going to die, but you don't have to be afraid. Believe in me. Believe in my Father. And he says, I'm going. And they say, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Understand that ancient Near East betrothal or engagement process looked like this. You ready? I say, dost thou want to be my wife? And she says, yeseth. And so now we enter into a legal union of betrothal. Now we are legally bound together even though we haven't had a wedding yet. So we have entered into this engagement, and that's when I say, next, bye. And I go away to my father's house, because I don't have enough money for a down payment, and there's not a bunch of realtors in the ancient Near East. There is only my father's house. And so what I need to do is say, pops, I'm getting married, and he hands me a hammer. And so what I go and do is prepare a place. And I add something on the flat roofs of the ancient Near East. Or I add a little addition in the bottom floor where the manger is. And I create another little tiny room. Not a mansion. The King James said there's many mansions. And that's an unfortunate translation. Because mansion basically was another word for a place. Wouldn't you love to just have... Oh, this is my mansion over here. That ain't a mansion. That's a place, dude. We're not making a mansion a huge estate. We're adding a place on the father's house. So I go and I'm working away and I'm building my wife a house with my bare hands. And when I'm done and finished, because Robert Vaughn came and helped me because he's actually built a house. I put on my best duds and I walk back over and I say, it's time for the marriage. And I come back to her. And then I come back to her, and we have a big old feast. We have a big old party. And we walk hand in hand back to my father's house. And she looks around, and she says, not bad. I didn't think there was going to be room. I said, no, there's plenty of room. What Jesus is saying is, we're together. We are in this. And you may not know where that place is. You may not know what it's going to look like. But trust me. And if you trust me, I'm going to go ahead of you. And I'm going to get my hands dirty. But I'm going to prepare a place. And trust me, there's not just room for Thomas and Bartholomew and Peter and James and John. There's room enough for everybody. There are 
many places in my father's house. Matter of fact, he would love it best if every single one of you knuckleheads comes with me when I return. So he goes and he says, you can trust me because friends understand what Thomas had to learn in that moment. That the way is not an idea. It's a person. That the truth is not a philosophy. It's a person. And that the life is not some abstract hope. It is a person. The way, the truth, and the life is not an idea. He's a person to trust and follow. When he says, I am the way, you say, the way that you touched the poor and the sick the way, the way that you talked to the outcast and the sinner, the way that you healed, the way that you washed feet, the truth that confronts the proud, arrogant, we have all the answers, people, the life that shows us what sacrificial love looks like. It's a person. And so whatever's going to get us there to the Father's house is the same thing that's going to keep us in eternal life and love the moment I close my eyes in death. I know that I can depart and be with Christ, and that is heaven. And then when Christ comes back at the marriage and says, we're going to have a party, it's finally time. You've waited so long, but guess what? You're going to be like I am in Colossians 3. You're going to be raised and your body's going to be fit for a new place I'm creating. It's called the new heaven and new earth. Want to come? That's the place I've been preparing. And so we march from Revelation 4, where we started, and we go to Revelation 22. The Father's house, that's a garden city, and there's room enough for you. What does that mean for Grandpa Wood? What does that mean for Grandma Joanne? What does that mean for Grandma Bobby? What does that mean for Nana Pat? What does that mean for Papa? What does that mean for Aunt Christy? What does that mean for Uncle Bob? What does that mean for every single person that you know that has closed their eyes in death and you wonder and you hope against hope that they're in heaven? I say to you, they're in heaven. And it's probably more mysterious but there's enough glimpses here to show us that there's something of eternal life and it's being with the Father. It's less of a place and more of being with the person because the way and the truth and the life is the only way to the Father, which is love and life and being who is a person. That's who I want to follow to get to God. You can trust the Father to keep us safe in His care along with all those who've gone before. And we can call that heaven. Until Jesus returns. And then we'll call that the new heaven and the new earth. You can trust that Jesus will bring us all the way down to the end so we can rest easy after life before Jesus returns and all is renewed. Amen and amen.